Well, we've been turning to the Psalms this month because the truth is there are certain seasons that tend to creep up on us and kind of cloud our vision. It's more than just emotions. They're really this kind of fog or this season that can set in on us and kind of basically begin to dictate our reality. The first week we looked at when relationships and communities get difficult and strained, we can be tempted to go it alone, right? This is what happens all the time, especially in churches. The second week, last week, we looked at when you've blown it, right? When you've majorly messed up and made mistakes and hurt others, it's not so much that you've blown it. What really matters is what do you do next? That's what we looked at last week. And each week, we're looking at the Psalms when these seasons creep up because the Psalms remind us at least two things. The first is what we just sang. You are not alone. The problem with these seasons is that it creeps up on us and thinks we are alone. It makes us believe that we are the only one in the world that feels this way and that no one can really understand what we're going through. Well, if you look in the middle of this old book called the Bible, there are 150 raw, gut-wrenching poems that let you know that you are not the first person to feel rejected, you're not the first person to feel afraid, you're not the first person to feel joy, you're not the first person to just feel like giving up, you're not alone. And the Psalms remind us of this, that's the first thing. The second thing the Psalms remind us is this, God is not done. These are people who lived real lives, who gave us permission to get real with God and others, and they always came back to the same conclusion that no no matter how crummy it is, God is not done with you, and God is not done with this situation. So even though we have a crummy week as a nation, we still are people who look it straight in the face and say, this is not God's ideal, but we believe his kingdom is coming. And so in every psalm, there's this undercurrent of hope that says what we just prayed. Oh God, only you can renew all things, even though things look really, really crummy. The psalms remind us of these things. And for this reason, the psalms are universal. The Psalms cover the whole scope of human emotion and experience, and that's why I think they're so vital for us to look at each week in this month. One of mine and Amy's favorite local musicians is a guy named Doug Burr. He's been around the scene uh, based in Denton primarily for about 10 years. He's gotten some national publicity, and he's kind of a more Americana folk type of dude. And a few years back, after he had a couple successful albums, he went to an old broke-down church in West Texas, and he began to set to music the pages and words of Scripture in the Psalms, and he set them to music. And it was so cool for Amy and I to go to bars in Deep Ellum and to go to bars in Fort Worth and hear the words of these Psalms and these songs that felt just as at home there as they do in the cathedrals. And that's because these psalms are universal. And one of the psalms that Doug Burr set to music is a psalm we're going to look at tonight. So I invite you to turn to Psalm 73. It's a psalm about when we lose our focus on God and His way and the good things that God brings us into our lives. It's a psalm about losing focus. 
So as you turn there, and before we get too far into it, I'd invite you to look at a video. And we're going to be talking about focus tonight. And because this room is so bright, which is one reason why we're moving back to the sanctuary in a couple weeks, because this room is so bright, y'all got to really focus. So do we have the audio cord plugged in? All right. Y'all take a look at this video. Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. But but how did you know? Madam, as any horticulturist will tell you, one does not plant petunias until May is out. Take her away. It's just a matter of observation. The real question is how observant were you? Clearly, somebody in this room murdered Lord Smythe, who, at precisely 3.34 this afternoon, was brutally bludgeoned to death with a blunt instrument. I want each of you to tell me your whereabouts at precisely the time that this dastardly deed took place. I was polishing the brass in the master bedroom. I was buttering his lordship's scones below stairs, sir. I was planting my petunias in the potting shed. Constable, arrest Lady Smythe. (laughs) Two questions. Did anybody think that was a commercial for cyclists? No. The second and more important question for our purposes is this. Did any of you, and be honest, notice any of the 21 changes? Like any of them? Okay, Mark. I don't believe you noticed the clock. Okay, the rolling pin. Okay. Y'all should be some detectives. I did not see one of those changes. Because with everything that was going on in that scene, I think what happens is we lose focus and miss what is right in front of us. Like this video, we can lose focus and forget that God is at work all around us. So the challenge that we face is keeping our attention on him. The challenge that we face is paying attention and staying near to him because I believe what the psalmist will come to believe, and that is that God is near to us. But what we've really got to do is take a step further and say what the psalmist winds up believing, and that is that it is good to be near God, and that he is our help and our refuge. 
But what we're going to see is this psalmist take a beautiful and powerful and painful journey in 28 verses in Psalm 73 of some serious wrestling and doubt because he moves his attention, he moves his focus away from God and his way, and he finds in all of these other distractions the world offers us some temptation to forget God and go on his own way. This is a psalm tracking the inner turmoil of someone like many of us who frankly just get distracted and can amble on down the way and realize that we've left God in the dust. We can amble on the way and, and miss completely all the things happening at work around us. Am I the only one that's felt this way? You'll see some questions for reflection uh, in your handout, but tonight's big idea just below it is this. God is always near to us, but will we pay attention and stay near to him? I'd like to begin reading and following this journey, rather than read the whole thing and make some observations, we're going to plot and track this journey with him, and you'll find an outline in your handout that will kind of help you get the scope of what the psalmist's journey is all about. Look with me in verse 1. He says this, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now, to our ears it sounds like a nice religious truism. To the Old Testament ears, those people living in the ancient Near East in the nation of Israel, this was an orthodox, creedal kind of statement, right? This was a statement that really organized and gave shape to their way of viewing the world. And basically it says, God is good and gives good things to his good people. So God meets the needs of the people who are in relationship with him. But I love that when you read verses 2 to 3, look with me at them. He says, but, so it's all of a sudden, that truism that you might believe in verse 1, it's kind of like he's saying it with like, surely God's good to his people, right? Because look what happens in verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. So what the psalmist is giving us a peek into is he says, I almost gave up on what I've known and believed. And here's why, verse 3. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. What the psalmist is saying, I believe that God gives us what we need. But when I looked around, I was looking down the path and following the line, but then I took my eyes off and I looked at all these crazy people who didn't know God and didn't follow God, and I saw that they were doing awesomely. And then he says, if you imagine him walking this tight line, and he's keeping his eyes focused on God's way and who God is, when he takes his eyes off and envies, as he says, those people who are not in relationship with God but doing really well, he began to slip and stumble and falter. What he did was what we do when our truisms butt up against real life, we start to doubt. We can say all day that verse 1 is true until we look out in the world and we see that our world and our experience seems to confirm the opposite. And so I just want to take a quick pause straight in with three verses and say, do you believe that God might actually allow you to test and doubt and wrestle? 
Do you know that in the Old Testament, one of the names for God's people was derived from those who wrestle with God? I think one of the problems with us in American Christianity is we think that God said it, I believe it, that settles it. And what we're going to see is this journey where he says, I'm going to be honest with you. I believed verse 1 my whole life, but when I finally looked up and looked around at the world, everything I believed starts to come into question. And I believe that if we stay near to God, doubt can actually lead you deeper. Now, we know so many people within our community who have stepped into seasons of doubt. Not all of them have stepped back into life with God and community. But I believe that those who have have done so because they still cling to the person of Jesus. They still cling to who they believe God to be, but they want to put through the ringer and through the litmus test those things that they believed. And I believe that God is strong enough to wrestle with us. Sometimes doubt can lead you deeper on the other side if you keep pushing. So the psalmist has this crisis because he believes that God does good things for good people, but he looks around the world and he sees all these other people partying and living life and doing really super well. So what happened is he took his eyes off of the path and he put his eyes on others. And this psalmist journey will see at least three reasons why we can lose focus. We just found the first one. It's in your hand now. We're, we can lose focus when we're convinced that the grass is greener on their side. You see that envying he had there. Then look at his perception when he looked up and saw these people. Verses 4 and 5. They have no struggles. (laughs) Their bodies are healthy and strong. They look better than me. And then verse 5, he says, they're free from common human burdens. They're not plagued by human ills. Now, is verse 4 and 5 true of these people this psalmist saw? Did they have no struggles, no stress, and they just flat out looked better than this guy? I would say what is true in this biblical text is this psalmist's perception of what he saw. But the reality is he didn't see the whole picture, which I think when we're tempted to focus on others and see and believe that the grass is greener on their side, I believe this perception is, can be like the Facebook effect. What do I mean by the Facebook effect? Well, let me say first that I think Facebook, by an, in and of itself, is not a bad thing. Like any technology, like anything in our world, it can be used for wonderful and beautiful and connective purposes, but it can also, like everything else in our world, be used for some destructive and deforming purposes. And so what happens is a lot of sociologists have noticed that there's this idea that when people tend to post their best self on Facebook... When someone else on the other side starts to look and focus on their life and they only see the greatest hits, what do you think begins to form in that person who's observing a tiny fraction of the picture? What do you think starts to happen within them? Dude, look at this food. Look at this vacation. They must have no worries. They must be healthy and strong. They must be free from human burdens, Psalm 73, verses 4 to 5. This is the Facebook effect. My wife, after giving birth to Emma, our first daughter, who's starting kindergarten on Monday, pray for us, 
She was on Facebook, and she found that in that vulnerable season after having a child, she sees everybody else's babies doing all the right pictures, doing all the right milestones, doing all the right this, that, and the other. And Amy says, you know what? I'm in a season where I'm kind of being vulnerable here, and I'm really sensitive to this, and I'm pretty sure that there's a whole story I'm not seeing, but what I am seeing is causing me to envy them, and it's causing me to feel like I'm not good enough. And so I'm so proud of my wife because what she did was, I'm going to get off of Facebook. Kudos to everybody else who can be on Facebook, but she just couldn't do it. And so she stepped back from Facebook because she realized what is there in your handout. Sometimes when we turn our focus away from God and who he's made us to be, and we look at who he's made others to be, is we can begin to envy them, and then ultimately that leads to a distortion of our image of self. Sometimes, not all the time, like the psalmist, we can lose focus on what God has given us, and we can also lose focus on who God has made us to be. And I'll just say this, comparison will kill your self-worth. There is nothing more insidious in church life, I think, than comparison. Do not compare your life and your rhythm to my rhythm and Pastor Bud's rhythm and Pastor Kathy's rhythm. We have a unique role and a unique vocation to do and be who God has called us to be. But we are not in your places of work loving people. We are not in your schools. We are not in your homes. You need to be who you need to be, who God's made you to be, and do not compare yourself to us because y'all know us, we're a huge wreck. Why would you want to compare yourself to us? We need to be who God has made us to be. This becomes a major issue for the psalmist because then he leads us to this second issue, I think, in a moment. But basically, he starts to look out at the others and he says, but wait a minute. Even if they don't have all these cares and their Facebook feed looks really awesome, these are a disaster of a people. And you'll look in the second page of your handout, I'm going to read the next several verses in the message translation, because I think the message helps us to understand these metaphors that we just can't really get along. It's a poetic way of saying these people (laughs) are just terrible. Does that sound lovely? Let's read. I was looking the other way, right? There's his loss of focus. Looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who've made it or who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the whole wide world, pretentious with arrogance, they wear the latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. Back to the New International Version, he gives a summary picture of them in verse 12. This is what the wicked are like. Always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. This is what they're like. They're the rich and powerful who everyone in our culture is looking to. And God help us listening to. We have leaders who do not speak words of peace, but words of violence. And this is who our people are listening to. So it is so crucial 
that we not follow the way of the world and lose focus and listen to the wrong voices, not just by way of comparison, but by way of violence and pride and all of this ways that seem to attend the rich and powerful who have no care for God or others but only themselves. But we can so easily fall into this trap. So how might we keep our focus on God and who we are in Him and what He's given? I'd like to present to you maybe one practical way, and it might be of help to you. It's called a gratitude journal. I think this is a great antidote to the way of looking to the rich and powerful or the way of looking to your friends who have it made on Facebook. We went over this last year in The Good and Beautiful God in our fall class, and it was a way of training ourselves to notice where God is at work in our midst, right? Because we totally blew it on the video, but the gratitude journal helps us get into focus on what God has done and who he's made us to be. So James Bryan Smith, who wrote the book, The Good and Beautiful God, has been practicing this gratitude journal for years, and he encourages us to start small. So would you, brave souls, join me tomorrow in taking a journal or a notebook or something that you can return to often and start small and write out 10 things that you're grateful for. It can be the big things, those you love, your family. It can be fun things like thank God for coffee because I would have not survived this day. But start with 10 things. Start small. I think one of the problems when we enter into spiritual disciplines or just trying to put on new things and new habits is we start too big and we ruin it. And then what? You start to feel bad about yourself and lose focus on God and you focus only on yourself. So he says start with 10. Because the second step is to add to it every day. And that's when you can begin to expand. Maybe you want to try adding five things a day. Maybe you just want to add one thing a day because you're the type of person that wants to do this for the rest of your life. But whatever you decide, the third step is the beautiful step because what begins to happen within you is you start to look beyond the everyday distractions and you see the hidden ways in which God is at work and gifting you with things you never have said thank you for. That's why in our church... We teach our kids, and we do this with our adults. If you're stuck in prayer, start by finishing this sentence. Y'all remember what I'm going to say? Thank you. And then if you run out of thank yous, go to the next column and say, would you? And what a way to pray for people, because sometimes I got a long list of would yous for people I love, and not very many thank yous. So maybe the gratitude journal might help us get into tune to the fact that God is near and at work, but are we aware of it? So ultimately, all of this, when he looks around and sees all these guys blowing hot air, he says in verse 13, Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Well, here's what he says. Man, I have done all of this for nothing. Let's be real. Sometimes when you look at your bank account, because you just bought a bunch of school uniforms for our neighbors, and then in a couple months I'm going to tell you to go spend money at the craft fair, and then the month after that we might go and do something silly like provide Thanksgiving meals to people who couldn't have Thanksgiving, and maybe we might even do something crazier like we've been 
known to do is invite these people who don't have a family and, and encroach now on our space. And then I'm going to ask you in December to perhaps buy some toys for these kids. And what's going to happen is on New Year's Eve, when you come to our New Year's Eve party and we dance in this gym with bounce houses, don't tell Freeman Heights Baptist, you're going to say, Adam, look at my dang finances. Give me some benevolence because I've wasted all my money and all my time trying to love my neighbor as myself and my kids. And what has it gotten me? I'm broke. I'm at strife with my spouse. Let's be honest. I think those are the times that we can lose focus in another way, and that's the second way, and that's what he's talking about in verse 13. We can become an older brother. Do y'all remember the story of the prodigal son? We all know about the younger son who went out and had a wonderful time blowing all his money. But then it runs out. Well, he comes back, and the father, of course, Jesus blows our expectations out of the water, what we thought God to be like. And he says, this guy was looking at the horizon. And it wasn't so much that it was the son who is absent as the God who is present and ready to welcome him. And he comes running. But there's another person in the story that we often forget, and that's the older brother. Y'all remember the older brother? What does the older brother do? He does what I did because I'm an older brother. And when I couldn't watch Terminator 2, Judgment Day... And my younger brother comes around and is putting that thing on the family's first DVD. That's a whole other can of worms. Why was that our family's first DVD, Terminator 2 Judgment Day? <laughs> but I'm mad because my brother, who's two and a half years younger than me, is kicking it watching Arnold do his thing. I'm saying I wasn't allowed to watch that. I've been slaving away for two and a half years watching VHS of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and you've got Terminator 2 Judgment Day. The older brother says, you've never thrown me a party. Here I have been doing all this and following all the rules. And then that leads to what? Bitterness and a temptation to reject the father's way. And the problem is that bitterness makes us ungrateful for what we have. Because in the prodigal son's story, it ends with this question mark hanging over it. Saying, son, everything I have is yours. Come into the party. But we never know if he makes it. We can have this older brother effect. And sometimes if we're honest, we can live out the other part of this psalmist journey in verse 13 and says, God, is your way really worth it? Is your way really worth it because it hurts to love my enemies? Is your way really worth it because it's hard to be still and try to rest in you? God, is your way really worth it? I feel like it's just been all in vain especially when we get to the third reason we can lose our focus, and this is where it really, really, really hits. Look at his perception in verse 14 and 15. All day long I've been afflicted, and every morning brings new punishments. Imagine the guy walking outside, and he steps on the rake, and it smacks him in the face. His perception is that he only has bad things in his life. Go back to the gratitude journal. In those seasons where you're living, verse 14, would you pull out that gratitude journal that you started on Sunday, August 20th, and stopped August 21st, if you're like me, (laughs) and say, at least I had two days where I was grateful. But to be serious... 
It's those moments we need reminding. We need people in our lives to say, you are not who you say you are. Things are not as bad as you think they are. Because see what the Psalms remind us. You're not alone and God is not done. You're not alone and God is not done. If this is you right now thinking that the only thing in your life is pain, you're not alone and God is not done. You're not alone and God is not done. Would you hear the words we sang and would you hear the words I'm saying? Because the problem is this. Pain narrows our focus. How many of us know this to be true? Oh my God, is this true? The pain is all we can feel. Our brothers and sisters suffering with depression, there is no way out, it seems, because pain narrows our focus. Until you talk to the brothers and sisters who have found some relief and victory from depression, and you see, oh wait, maybe there is. But right now, it just hurts. Well, you're not alone, and God is not done. Y'all know we've had some crazy storms this last week. I have a five and a half year old. I have a three and a half year old. Here's what happens when storms hit in my house. We got an old house, so every time the thunder hits, it shakes our whole house, and I wake up. And I don't wake up alone. But this week was really different for me because I'm awake and I'm listening because I'm convinced that they are going to be losing their minds in their little rooms. And I hear nothing. And then, when my house is about to fall apart. And then I hear nothing. And because Amy sleeps like a rock, and I don't, it's a survival mechanism for Amy because I snore. She has to stay asleep. So I get up and I sneak into their room, and what I see in Nora's bed is this lump under the covers. Emma's asleep, but Nora is under blanket number one, Comforter number two, frozen blanket number three, and then two little tiny doll blankets number four and five. And so I'm saying, oh my God, my child is suffocating. So what I do is I peel back the comforter and all the other blankets, and she is there like this because the storm narrowed her focus. And I said, sweetie, why didn't you call out to daddy? She said, the storm was too loud. And I said, do you want to come into bed with daddy and mommy? She goes, yes. She grabs her little lion and her blankie, and we scoop her up, and we do this, and she's in bed with us. Fast forward a couple days, same thing with Emma. And I'm sitting here reading Psalm 73, and I see both times these girls have the covers pull up, and all they can see is the covers, and all they can hear is the storm. And what happens is, in those moments, I was near, and they didn't even know it. I was near and they couldn't even see me through the covers. They couldn't hear me through the thunder. And I don't want to stretch this analogy too much, but I'm going to tell you all we can hear sometimes is the thunder. So what do we do? This psalm, you'll notice in the superscription that we talked about last week, it says a psalm of Asaph. And we don't know much about Asaph. It might be a name. It might be a family. It might be a super cool band name. They're referenced in the first couple books in the historical versions of the Bible. But what we can assume is that whoever Asaph is, this group of psalms, ten of them in this chunk, were probably written in a stormy time in God's people's life. And look at the storm within when pain narrows his focus, verses 15 to 16. If I had spoken out like that, 
I would have betrayed your children. He says, if I would have brought my doubts public, your church would have freaked out. Verse 16. But when I tried to understand all this internally, it troubled me deeply. So there's this storm going on. The covers are pulled up. Pain narrows his focus. He feels like he's alone. This distorted perception hits. And then the whole thing shifts in verse 17. Till I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Two things. The whole picture comes clearly into focus. The second thing, he ran to his daddy. And we talked about this last week, but there's still this troubling thing when pain and doubt and lack of focus and bitterness and envy creep up is we feel like God won't want us because we're too not like him. The reality is that God is longing to be gracious to you. Would you run to him? What happens in verse 17 is he's been staring at the magic eye. Y'all remember the magic eye pictures? And he sees all this chaos. And the chaos looks like the rich and powerful living lives of luxury. And he sees all of this. And he thinks, why have I been following God's way? He sees their Facebook feed and everything looks great. And it's this big jumbled mess of color and shape and distortion. Until finally he runs to his father. He sits in stillness. And by the way... In Israel, when these psalms were written, it's never alone. He runs to these people and he looks around and he sees, oh, but you're not like them. Oh, you do love me. You can accept me. You can shoulder my burdens and help me with my doubts. And he goes into the sanctuary. He meets God. He meets those people. And all of a sudden, the magic eye snaps back into focus. And now, the funny thing about the magic eye is that image was hidden there all along. He just couldn't see it because he lost focus. And here's the other crazy thing about magic eyes. you got to stay looking at it or you'll lose it again. What would it look like for you to move into this space of being present to God's presence in those times and moments you want to lose focus? When you envy others. God, you've made me. I am one in whom Christ dwells. You are my father. I am your beloved daughter. What would it look like to be present to God's presence when bitterness seeps in? God, your way is difficult, but your way is the abundant life offered in Jesus, and I believe it when he says it. Whatever I've been settling for is temporary. It's lesser than. But God, would you remind me, would I stay in focus, that you are good and you've given me abundant life? What does it look like for you to be present to God's presence at home? Washing dishes. And that's not a joke. An entire book you've heard me talk about if you've been around any stretch of time was written by a monk who is a dishwasher. It's called The Practice of the Presence of God. I have tattoos, spoiler alert, my first tattoo, I had to mark on my body when I was 18 years old, Coram Deo, which means before the face of God. My dad is convinced it says right arm to this day, but it says before the face of God. What does it look like for you to live a Coram Deo life at home washing dishes? What does it look like for you to be present to his presence when you're driving in the car and there's myriad distractions? What does it look like for you to redeem that time on Monday on your drive in? 
What does it look like for you to redeem that time and be present to his presence at work? And maybe you would see this person not as enemy, but as someone to be loved and treated with respect. That's what happens when God gets in the midst. That's what happens when the whole picture snaps into focus. What would it look like for you? There's more things written out on your handout. What would it look like for you to be present to God's presence? Now, in the Psalms, we have to understand the culture in which this was written. And part of the culture is that there is God's way and then there's every other way. And God's way leads to life, but every other way leads to certain death and nothingness. So part of the thing about seeing the whole picture is not just that, God, your way is best, but it's this sullen and sober reality that these people who I've been envying, look at verse 18. Surely you place them on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they're destroyed and completely swept away by terrors. You know, it's interesting because in verse 2, he talks about feet slipping and losing footholds. Often you read in the Old Testament, these people who have no anchor, no community, no God, of course they're going to get swept away when times are hard. That's why we've got to be present to God and present to each other. Verse 20, they're like a dream when one awakes, they just vanish. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. And what that means is when the truth comes out, they will realize that they were not God. And that perhaps in living for themselves, they've made a hell for others. Verse 21, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, that's that inner storm. He says, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. He says, I was so ignorant. How many of you have felt ignorant when you finally realized that you were wrong or you've looked at things differently? These are why these are so universal. But look at what happens next. Someone reads silently verse 23, and let me tell you, what I would have expected him to say. Surely, God, you were always with me. Is that what it says? No. He says, yet I am always with you. When you get with God, when you run to him in the sanctuary, when you notice all the good ways he's at work with your gratitude journal, when you try to be present to his presence in your real, actual life, you might begin to see that even when I am ignorant, even when I blow it, you won't shun me. God, you're forming me, you're with me, and I am always with you, and you can live a quorum Deo life. I think that that is a beautiful and powerful surprise in the Scripture because we love to talk about all the ways that God is with us. But the psalmist says, even when I screw it up, I'm still with you. God is not an absent father, though sometimes we can be absent children. And when he thought he was slipping in verse 2, he finds out, You hold me by my right hand, verse 23. You see that? It's in those moments when we slip, would God be gracious to us and remind us that he's got our back and our hand when we fall? Oh, that you would see God to be as gracious as he truly is. When he holds him by the right hand, verse 24 as he's moving back into the community with God and others. He's regaining his focus. He says, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will take me into glory. Sorry, Southern Baptist grandmas. Glory, glory, hallelujah. He's not talking about heaven. 
What he's talking about is even though I blew it, even though I felt distracted and tempted, you're going to lead me in glory to an honorable place. You're going to walk with me along the path because look what happened. He says your counsel, your guidance, these are good things and I see it now. I see that the abundant life is life. Let's follow through the end of the journey. You with me? He says this finally. Remember he was looking at all the things they had. He says, whom am I, whom have I in heaven but you? And in earth has nothing I desire beside you. He was tempted earlier and wanted all the stuff that they had, but when he sees God and when the focus comes back, he realizes God is so much better than stuff. Jesus says, what was it profit a person to gain everything the world has to offer, but he loses the life that God has given him? Jesus says, no, only those who give their lives over to God will find it back in him. This is what Jesus says in Matthew 16. And this is what's so beautiful. Stay with me to the end here. Then he, there's another summary here. He says, my flesh and heart may fail. I was tempted. I lost focus. But God is the strength of my heart and what I need, my portion forever. Then finally, those who are far from you is certain death. And you destroy all those who are unfaithful to you. This is just what it means when you follow on the the ways of the world. The end is violence and oppression and ultimately death. But God, when we were sinners, made us alive together with Christ. Even though the wages of sin were death, when we were enemies, God has ransomed and rescued us. This is what the New Testament says resoundingly. But then look what happens finally. Verse 28. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my home, my refuge, and I'll tell of your deeds. Look back at verse 1 with me, and you'll find one word repeated in verse 1 and in verse 28. It's the same word. It's the word good. I am not a Hebrew scholar, but I'm told that the word good in verse 1 refers to the things that God gives you, right? This refers to the commodities, right? This refers to prosperity. And this is what he was saying, I think this is right. And after that movement of loss of focus and temptation and doubt, we come all the way to the end of the journey with God clearly back in focus, and he says it is good to be near God. Verse 1, he had a theoretical understanding that God gives you commodities. But in verse 28, he says, it is good that God gives me communion. In verse 1, he says, I understand theoretically that God will give me prosperity. But in verse 28, the same word, he says, but now God gives me his presence. And this is why I think doubt and temptation and refocusing is so important to our journey of faith because it moves us from a theoretical belief to an experiential life. For us, would we be able to say as we close, it is good to be in communion and near to God. We have made him our home and we will tell others that his way is the right way to life, would we see that we can find life in him experientially that is really better? 
Would we echo the words with a deeper awareness on the other side of temptation and doubt and loss of focus that God is always near to us? And will we pay attention and stay near to him? May it be for us as people who are trying to live focused on him and his way. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you for your presence among us. Would we be present to your presence in new ways this week? Would you awaken our imagination by your Holy Spirit to find those ways to be present to you and others in our places of work and play and neighborhood? That we would see you in the eyes of others and that we would be people who call that out. That we would affirm people and not destroy people, that we would see the focus and in love direct others off of the path of destruction and into life with you, for you would love nothing more than that all people would come to know you and to know your King, Jesus, whose arms are open wide to those who would repent and believe the good news that you are a good and gracious King. So we pray as we come to the table that we would remember that you are with us in these elements in some mysterious and beautiful way within and without the bread, within and without the wine and the juice, that we would take into our bodies your nearness. And then we would go out and walk in that nearness to all those places you would call us. We ask this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 6, 23 through 24. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God and the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love uncorruptible. Go in peace.